First thing I'm going to do is talk about my favorite running apparel called Exoskin. Hey guys, I did a live video, uh, Instagram live. I think that's the right words for it. I did an Instagram live video last night about gear, and uh, it was a great response, and it was a great opportunity for me to highlight a product that I really, really believe in, and that product is called Exoskin. Um, Exoskin makes the premier running apparel on the market today. It literally works as prescribed. It works the way they say it's going to work. It channels moisture away from your skin, so it cuts down on chafing tremendously. Um, the products are made 100% in America, down to the yarn. Um, they last forever. Most of my Exoskin products are a couple years old, mm -hmm. and they still fit and function flawlessly, so I appreciate that. Um, one of the questions last night on the Instagram live video while we were talking about exoskin was, do they retain odor? Because as most guys know, James, I know you know, brother, when you're out in the wilderness for <laughs> multiple days. Yeah, man, especially synthetic fabrics. So, like, that's one of the good things about wool is um, wool doesn't retain odor like a synthetic fabric usually would. So what Exoskin has done to mitigate that is they've actually woven um, copper fiber into the yarn that they make these, you know, these, these clothing items with. And the copper somehow magically um, like cuts down on the bacteria and the odor. So you can run in the same shirt for a week straight and it still doesn't stink. That's, that is a true statement because all of your clothes smell except for your exoskin clothes. Yeah. Thank you, baby. That's true. Thank you, exoskin. And I'm not a scientist, and I don't know a lot, but I have been told that there is something about copper that, like, you can run a copper pipe over your hand, and it will sanitize your hand. So yep. I think the whole copper and the wood, I think I think that's legitimate science behind that. Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they're not just tell, they're not just trying to sell us a thing. The dude that makes this stuff, Rick, he's super super smart. Um, I've tried to talk to him a few times, and he just he's way over my head when it comes to uh, fabric and yarn and everything. But hey, guys, if you want to check out Exoskin, please do at exoskin.us. That's exoskin.us. And they have provided us with a pro code. That pro code is three of seven. The number three of seven. Please use that. When you order your new running apparel from Exoskin, it's going to give you 25% off of your entire purchase until the end of April. All right. That's Exoskin, guys. Biscuit can't set anything down on that table again because it makes a terrible noise. Okay. <laughs> Try to remember. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 307 Podcast. Um, we've got the beautiful Brooke with us today. We're so thankful that she's here and she's taking time out of her precious schedule to join us on this podcast, and I know you guys as listeners are thankful too um, because Brooke always has great questions and great inputs and a different perspective than I do at times. 
And we have got an amazing guest here for you today, Mr. James Ward. Uh, James has become a friend of mine throughout the day today. <laughs> we had a pretty good mountain bike good, ride. Good ride. Yeah, man. We had a solid ride today um, out on the trails, and we've had some great fellowship. Uh, we had a great dinner together, and we've just been talking through our missions and um, what we can do to improve our missions uh, and getting input from each other. So I've really enjoyed the time that we've spent together today, James. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come and share with us. Uh, we really value your time. We value your stories. We love you, brother. Welcome. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm more than excited to be here with you. And Brooke, thanks for the awesome dinner. Yeah, you're Fed me welcome. well. I'm like, <laughs> hopefully I won't go into like a coma or something Not while out. I'm sitting here yeah. after all that food. So <laughs> yep. thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. And I had a blast today hanging with you guys. Really, really did. <laughs> I did too, man. It was a beautiful and day. And it needs to be said how freaking strong James is on that mountain bike. What did you call him? You said something uh, about his legs. I was, uh, oh. I don't remember. I was just saying how huge your legs are, like muscular. <laughs> I think I called him Hercules legs or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah, he got he definitely got a nickname out there. So. Yeah. Killed it. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. Yeah, he hey, I'll take it. it. I'll take it. Yeah. He crushed it for sure. So um, you guys are going to learn a lot more about James and his mission throughout this episode, obviously. James, I want to start with um, introducing you professionally. You are the executive director for a faith-based nonprofit organization called Heart of Lebanon. And the way we met is you guys have an initiative right now currently called Now is the Time. Yeah. And uh, James reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to contribute to this virtual event yeah. called Now is the Time. And, of course, I looked into it and saw what it was and what the mission was and uh, the other people contributing, and it's just going to be awesome. Brooke and I recorded a or our segment uh, just about a day ago, and it turned out great. I was so thankful to be able to share the message that we shared, and I can't wait to listen to the other people that are contributing to this project, man. So I want you to just walk me through real quick what is now the, now is the time who are the other contributors and how can people join in on this man awesome man thanks chad and man i'm excited to have you uh as a part of this project you know this is something that um really just came about a couple weeks ago as all the when the world started to spiral out of control and things just started to get crazy i um i just felt like we needed a we needed to hear from some folks as to how to deal with the fear and the anxiety and the uncertainty that has just become a part of our everyday lives. And uh, so kind of had the idea, started talking to some folks, and um, it just gained momentum and picked up speed. And so over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've been able to assemble an awesome group of leaders, encouragers, um, former Navy SEAL, Chad, endurance athlete, 
uh, personal growth expert. We've been able to put together just an awesome group of folks, a great lineup. Um, it's going to be a hour long program. It's going to air on, it's going to be live on April 9th. I almost said August. Don't go, don't <laughs> wait till August on April 9th at 7 PM. And, uh, you could register by going to now is the time live and you can register there. That's just N O W is the time dot live. Um, and really it's, it's an hour long program. Everybody's doing like eight to 10 minute segments. So it's quick Ted talk style communication. That's really meant to help equip and inspire and give all of us the tools to thrive during this season of fear and uncertainty that has got a lot of people really on edge. And so we're going to talk about how now is the time to grow. Chad, that's the talk that you're doing. I'm so I got to hear the talk today, so I'm beyond excited for people to uh, to hear that and get those tools. We're going to talk about now is the time to engage, and we're going to talk about engaging spiritually in this time. Um, and now is the time to love. That it is in times like this when people need to feel loved, they need to be served, and uh, and it's our it's our hope that people will be inspired to take some action as a result of this time together. So again. Thursday night, 7 p.m. Most of us are stuck at home anyway, so I'm not sure what else. You know, I've kind of binged out on Netflix. Yep. <laughs> and so I'm excited to be able to put this out there and have people join. So, again, that's nowisthetime.live, and uh, you can go there and register. It's a free event. doesn't cost anything. It's just something that we're doing to try to encourage and to serve um, as many people as we can with, yeah. a, with a good message. Turn off Tiger King for what Turn you said an, an hour. It's an hour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Turn off Tiger King for an hour, and and you know get some good stuff flowing. That's awesome. The amazing thing is too is this is totally free. Totally like free. like yep. this a product like this with the people that you have organized to contribute to this program would most places cost you a minimum of four to five hundred dollars yeah if you were to go to a conference so we've got we've got chad there we've got danielle strickland there i don't if you've never heard of danielle she's an author awesome communicator just just an incredible human being uh kevin queen pastor of a church big church up in nashville cross point church um We've got Andrew Stanley as a comedian. It's going to be fun. It's not all just serious. It's going to, we're going to have some fun in there as well. You know, if you were to assemble that group of people and put them at a conference, it'd be hundreds of dollars to yes. come and hear from them. So this, it really is, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, no, that's absolutely amazing. And hey, my part's kind of serious, man. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you're um, always we've got, we've got the comedy going on right before you. So okay. it's per you're good. Right. You're good. And, and my, my, my part was actually 12 minutes long. So, uh-oh. Yeah, we'll have to edit some stuff uh, out. Grace, grace to you, Chad. You get 12 minutes. Man. So, hey, guys, if you're listening to this, please go sign up for this thing. Um, this is an awesome opportunity for you to invest in yourself. That's right. Um, to grow um, for multiple, multiple ways. Mm -hmm. And it's totally free. Um, so thankful for you putting this together, James. It's, uh, I think it's going to be very powerful. And, yeah, thanks for the info, man. Thanks for allowing me to contribute. Oh, man, I'm I grateful. I th think it's amazing, man. So that's it. That's what I wanted to cover on Now is the Time. Yep. Um, now is the time to get to know James. Now, yeah. <laughs> Now's the time to get to know James because James has done quite a bit of really cool stuff in his life.
Um, he's put himself in some dangerous places, um, and I know he's got tons of stories and tons of lessons learned from his missions that he served in and been a part of around the world. I'm really antsy about what you're going to choose to start with. <laughs> well, I think we should just start at the beginning. Okay. Because this is something that's on my bucket list of things to do is the Appalachian Trail. I knew you would start with that. Uh-huh. I absolutely knew it. <laughs> this, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the Appalachian Trail because I think there's so many other valuable lessons that that James has, but I think there's definitely some lessons that were learned probably on the AT too. And so, James, you graduated high school as an 18-year-old young man, and you set out to hike the Appalachian Trail, which is quite a monumental task. Why'd you set this goal for yourself, and what are some things that came out of it? You know, I um, I've always loved the outdoors, always loved backpacking, camping, and um, me and a buddy were up at a, a place up in North Georgia um, when we were in our, during our, I guess it would have been our senior year of high school, and we're up there, it was the middle of the winter, we're up on top of this mountain, it's on the Appalachian Trail, and um, and it's like, it's like nine o'clock at night or something, right? It's literally snowing outside. We're like bunkered down in our sleeping bags, in this shelter, ready to go to bed, and this guy comes strolling into the shelter. And he's got a beard, not quite as long as yours, Chad, but he's got a mega beard. And he's got icicles hanging off his beard. And we're like, who is this guy? You know, we're like 17-year-old guy. We're like, who is this guy? And uh, come to find out, he was through hiking. And he was finishing his hike. From that moment, Stephen, my, my buddy, and I just said, all right, we're going to do that. And that's what kind of put the plans in motion. And I don't know that we fully understood what we were signing up for what we were committing ourselves to um but that's 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 what we did and um my parents um are awesome they uh they drove us up we graduated high school in a, in a maybe a week later uh we got in the car and they drove us up to maine and they dropped us off and uh, we hiked home we, we were from north georgia the appalachian trail starts at mount katahdin in maine for those of you that don't know and it comes all along the eastern seaboard, I think through like 13 states, if I remember correctly, and uh, ends at Springer Mountain here, just not too far from, from where we are recording this podcast in North Georgia. Yep, yep. And what are, what are some lessons learned out there? Because, I mean, you spent a long time out in the wilderness with your, your thoughts. Yeah. And I'm sure a, a lot of adversity. <laughs> yeah, 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 a lot of adversity. And, you know, you're working through stuff in live action, man. So, um, you know, I see you have some notes here, you know, where you talk about how it affected your, your faith and um, how it affected your mindset and, you know, it being a physical, uh, a mental, and a spiritual yeah. journey, man. Well, what, can I ask, what yeah. was... Like, does something stick out in your mind as the hardest part about that adventure? Yeah. Um, we did a southbound through hike, uh, which means most people that do it do a northbound. They start in Georgia and hike up to, to Maine. We did a southbound just from the timing of graduating high school and needing to start college and all that, all that stuff. And um, so the most tricky part, or the, the hardest part for me was the first week and then probably it would have been like the 
three and a half months in. So we took we took quite a while. Today, people are doing the trail in just wicked fast times. And that's not, that wasn't us. We took our time. We enjoyed it. We had a great experience. Um, but the, the difficult part for me was we were coming through the Shenandoahs in Virginia. And uh, it was, I'll never forget it. It's October 31st. It was Halloween night. This is where it started. And uh, we're hiking along. By this time, we had like shed anything that was not essential. And so we had sent our tents home. We had this like tarp type thing they call the hepta wing. And we were, we, if we couldn't get in a shelter, there's shelters along the way. They're like lean-tos. If we couldn't get in a shelter, we'd use our hiking poles and we'd set up the hepta wing. Right? Turned out to be a really bad decision. And so we're, we're October 31st. We couldn't get to a shelter. We're camped alongside of the trail in a hepta wing. And the heavens just opened up, man. It was rain, sleet. It was like that awful temperature where it's not cold enough to snow, but way too cold for rain. And we got soaked. And at this point in the trail, like, I mean, everything wet. And at this point in the trail, we were like three, three or four days away from anywhere where we could get to a laundromat to dry stuff or, or you know, any, we were just stuck with soaking wet gear. And that was probably the coldest three days of the whole trail experience. And uh, it was just miserable. I mean, every day, everything wet, everything cold, and, uh, and just having to wake up every morning, having really not wake, wake up, having barely slept, shivered through the night, put on boots that it would get so cold at night. And Chad, you've probably experienced this in some of the places where you've trained, but it gets so cold at night that a wet boot would freeze and you go slide your foot into a wet boot that has frozen. It's a, it's an icicle. It's like an ice cream headache for like the first 30, 40 minutes you're hiking until your body heat warms it up enough to melt the ice. It's brutal. And so that was physically, that was the hardest part. So certainly. Did, did you guys not say, Hey man, let's just get off the trail and go to a hotel for a night and warm up. Like you guys were determined, we were, yeah. Like you weren't gonna cheat even a small amount. Yeah, you know we um, we made the decision when we started that we said uh, we could, and I don't I don't even know where this came from because we weren't wise enough to come up with this on our own. Someone must have told us, but we said <laughs> we said, listen, um, we're not gonna quit on a day where we want to quit. Meaning, and that's I probably didn't say that the right way, but what we decided is. We're going to quit. If I want to quit, I can't make that decision until the day after I have the thought or I vocalize it. Does it make sense? That's key, man. And so, And so what would happen was Stephen or I would vocalize it, and the other one would be like, no, nah, dude, that ain't happening. And they had a whole day to work on the other one to say, dude, we ain't quitting. You can't quit. You're going to go back. You know what people are going to say about when you go back? You're going to be a quitter. You want to be a quitter, James? Is that what you want to live? Right? And it's like, okay. And you got to sleep on it. Well, sleep has a way of just clarifying things, right? You wake up the next morning. It's like, okay, I can do one more day. And and that's that was kind of our mentality. And that's how we, I really believe that's how we got through the difficult times is making the, you know, because we were committed to that principle, that we weren't just going to quit on it on an instinct or on it in an, you know because of a momentary discomfort or frustration, I think that made a big difference for us. I really like that. I've never thought about that concept of if you want to quit, always have a certain amount of time before you're actually allowed to quit. That way, it's like you can a think it over. Period, right? It's yeah. like okay, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a good tool. I think a lot of guys utilize that same tool in steel training. I'm sure. Yeah. So I think that's a tried and true tool. And what a way nature puts stuff in perspective, huh? Yeah. You know, we you, you made a comment earlier, James, and you said, you know, every day here in America, uh, we and this is us, our lives, we have to choose between eating okay food or better food. Like yeah. we have to choose between chicken and steak. Like chicken, it's okay, but like you said, steak is better. Um, and we have that option every day. But uh, out there on the trail, you know, you're boiling water for your um, oatmeal breakfast, <laughs> and you're you're debating on whether or not you should pour boiling water on your frozen boots, <laughs> right. so you can so they're flexible enough for you to take your first few steps. Yep. You know what a what a way nature puts stuff in perspective, man. Dude, he's wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail for a long time, and it's so funny. One of the major things holding me back is the food. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know if I can eat freeze-dried meals and beef jerky for, what, probably take us five months. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure as young men it wasn't a problem for y'all, but. Yeah, you know, we, um, yeah, I mean, it's just there's not a lot of selection. No. Right? Back then especially, Yeah, man. back this then. This was in I mean, the yeah. late 90s. Yep, this was uh, 97 is when we hiked. Now, I just dated myself, but, uh, yeah, 97 yeah. when we hiked. Yeah. I, I too, I really, and I know that's probably what you were going to ask. Um, I really wanted to know what kind of spiritual growth yeah. came out of that. I'm, I'm really curious. You know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I grew up, a, I wouldn't say I grew up in a Christian household per se, although my parents certainly had high standards and morals and we would go to church occasionally and things like that. But I didn't, I didn't grow up, uh, I guess I'll say, surrounded by it all the time. Um, it was in probably middle school and high school where I really was exposed to church and spirituality. And, and I thought that I kind of got it. And even to the point where preparing for the trip, my buddy Stephen and I were like, you know what? We're going to hike the trail for Jesus. We're going to be telling people about Jesus. We're going to be, and, I, and I'll never forget on the, our first, uh, our first, so my parents dropped us off in uh, this little town outside of Mount Katahdin in Maine. And they, uh, they dropped us off. We had like two days to just get our gear together and we had to go buy some supplies and do all that kind of stuff. Um, I literally, just as a side note, I was so scared for them to leave. The, the, the thought of what I was gonna about to go do was so daunting to me. I, true story, I considered throwing myself down the stairs at the guest house to injure myself so I'd have a good excuse to not do the trail. Oh my that's gosh. just how, that's just how my mind, that's where my mindset was at that moment. I was so scared. Thankfully I, I didn't do that. But, um, but that's an indicator I think too, of just like, I thought I knew why we were doing it. I thought we had, but at the end of the day, I didn't have a clue. And early on in the trail, we just realized that People, people aren't there to, they're not, they're not excited to hear a couple 18 year old dudes tell them about Jesus. And, uh, and so we just, it was just one of those times that Chad, I've heard you talk about before this, the furnace of adversity, right? It was one of those things where over the course of time out on the trail and going through a variety of different physical, but specifically mental challenges in God's creation, 
that I really feel like God just grew in me an affection for him and uh, a true desire to understand more and to get to know more the creator. Um, and, and that's, I think, what I feel like the way I would say it is, you know, I think I, I probably left with, an, with a head knowledge of who God is and Jesus and what he's about. I think midway through the trail, that, that knowledge moved from my head to my heart, and, and I just really was in an environment where there were no distractions. You get, you get to the shelter at 7 o'clock at night, it starts getting dark. You're not, there's no TV to turn on. There's no, you're just there with your thoughts and the Bible and some nasty macaroni and cheese minus milk or butter, right? It's like, <laughs> so that's, that's your reality. What are you going to do? Well, you think and you pray and you open up the Bible and you read. And, that's, and I think it was during that time where I really developed kind of this heart understanding of who, who God is and his power and, and uh, the adventure of God was something that really appealed to me. Yeah, and, and the, the creation is the ultimate teacher. Yeah. It really is because as much as we might want to fight it, as much as, me, as much as we might want to deny it, whatever you want to say about it, we are all actually a part of nature. Yeah. We are a part of this creation. We're as much as a part of it as the deer you know, or the wild turkey out here that lives in the woods. Like, that's actually how we were meant to live. We were meant to live out here and learn things from creation and um, principles and tools and life lessons, and those can all be translated into regular life. So we could do a whole podcast just on the AT. I know know we could, man. Just that whole principle, that whole idea of what you just shared. You know, one of the things I think about sometimes is, and I don't want to derail us with this, but is – what are the long-term consequences for a society that takes that out of the equation, right? Where, where we build walls between us and God's creation and we, you know, creation becomes a concrete park with a playground. And I just wonder what effect that has long-term has on, on a people, because I just don't think we were created for that. I think we were created to, yeah. to experience his creation and experience him through creation. Yeah, and fear, I mean fear is one. That that's a negative effect of building walls between us and now, creation. Right? Fear is huge because yeah. I mean a large a large majority of the world's population, not just the United States, but the world, if you put them out here in the woods even with the proper gear, they would not know how to utilize the gear in order to survive even for I mean, they might survive for a week, but they would come out emaciated and, you know, thirsty as all get out and nasty. And, you know, so I, I couldn't imagine how if, if I didn't think that I could walk out of my front door and go live on that mountain right over there for a week or two, like I'd be scared to death for yeah. my own safety. But <laughs> like it's so freeing when you know that you can go out in nature and, um, and you can be comfortable, and you can learn from it, and you can live with it, you know, yeah. for me. I don't know. Biscuits are looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, you're crazy. Um, the comfortable uh, 
word that caught me off. Be comfortable? No. <laughs> We'd be eating deer meat. I'm comfortable after. Boiling. I'm comfortable after like the third day out there. Uh-uh. I need my Tempur-Pedic. <laughs> I was I was thinking while you were saying that like that was a good question to pose, and I know we need to move on to some other experiences, but I think that people miss out a lot on just the spiritual experience of just being away from from walls and and stuff that people have had their hands on it's you know that's even if you're not a christian you'll feel that you won't identify it you won't know what you're feeling but you'll know that you feel good yeah and you feel clear i think that's i think that's true well that you got me thinking though now i'm like ooh, I, i wonder and that so that to me is one of the main things that separates us from other animals uh, the fact that we can sit on the summit of the mountain and watch a sunrise and appreciate it and feel that that feeling just that overwhelming feeling and appreciate the beauty and understand it that to me that is what the spirit that's what yeah. a spirit is a, a, a human being that has a spirit we can appreciate the beauty and the intricacy of creation. I've spent a lot of time in the woods, man. So have you. I've never seen a deer or a wild turkey or an armadillo or a raccoon sit on a rock at sunrise and watch the sunrise and stand there in awe of it. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing that separates us, you know, and that's, that's what identifies us as having a spirit, which is different from the rest of, of, of nature, you know. Yeah. I feel like I've seen some turtles look at sunrises before. That's just survival. Oh, okay. They just want the sun to rise so they can get out of that cold water and warm up. Okay. Yeah. They're looking for the sun. Yes. Yeah. The sun, maybe. <laughs> that's it. All right, brother. We're going to carry on moving along from the Appalachian Trail. Obviously, you guys have a successful through hike. Um, you go to college, earn your degree. And shortly after college, you decide to get into international ministry and development work. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, you have a passion for empowering the poor and marginalized people of the world. That's very specific. Yeah. Um, I love that you that you you know added that in here. What what was the driving force? Um, what why did you choose, uh, I guess, that mission yeah. for your life, man? Yeah, that's a good question, Chad. I think if I'm honest here, I, I probably don't really know for sure why. I, I certainly didn't at the time. I probably could put. I could probably piece it together now. But um, at the time, I I had uh, had the opportunity to travel a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit internationally. And I just saw how most of the world lives. Um, I saw the, you know, you talked earlier about the choices that we get to make every day. And the people that, um, that live in some of the places where I've had the privilege of serving, you know, their decision is between bad and real bad. Um, and, and, and that's their reality most days. And so I just, I just felt like, man, I want to be a part. I want to be involved in helping create a better opportunity, a better future 
for some of these people, but not, not just because, you know, so they have a happier life, but ultimately so that, because I think as they experience empowerment, as they experience and find purpose in their life, as they experience, um, some joy and some happiness, ultimately, I think they will, especially in the right context, they'll grow in their relationship with Christ or, 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 or they'll grow spiritually as well. Right. Yep. And so the ministry aspect of it, bringing those two worlds together, the, the physical poverty and the spiritual, um, the spiritual poverty as well that exists and seeing that when you address both of those things at the same time, you can, people can really experience purpose and freedom and completion and completion and, and they can better their circumstances, right? It's like they don't, you don't, they don't need to continually be dependent on a handout. They can, they can better their circumstances. And they, uh, so that's, I just, I love that. I love, love, love uh, being able to be a part of that and seeing people experience what God has for them. Um, it's like the blinders come off and all of a sudden the world isn't against you. It's an opportunity for you. And God's had a purpose for you, and that's just that's just a that's an awesome thing to be able to be a part of. Yeah, it, I imagine it is, and that's a very very special and unique passion, man. And so thankful that there's people like you in the world out doing this work, um, because you know James has said uh, this multiple times while he's been here with me. He's you know this is the majority of the world. Uh, we're so insulated from what goes on in most other places in the world. You know, I mean, I've spent months and months and months in, in Africa. And, you know, these these people in Africa, like, they're living daily with malaria, um, stuff like polio, like all these crazy diseases that never cross our mind here in America because they've been eradicated, but... Like I remember training these dudes over in in uh, Nigeria, and these suckers would get like malaria, yeah. and they'd finally get it under control, and then they'd just get malaria they'd again. Get it again. It was just yeah. like a, a perpetual thing, and this was this was their life, man. Um, this and this is the majority of the world. So there's so much work to be done in your lane, man. And you know, I'm looking at a quote here from you, James, and you say. Poverty is not a material issue; it's a worldview issue. Um, can you walk me through exactly what you mean by that, man? Yeah, you know, I think I think a lot of times when we think about people that are living in extreme poverty, we think about the material things that they don't have, and that even even as a country, that's how we define poverty, right? There's there's a standard, there's a poverty line. If you below, live below this line of income, you're poor. You live above it, you're not. Well, I just I don't I don't ascribe to that. Um, I believe that um, take Africa as an example, right? As as a as a continent, but then you drill down into specific countries in Africa that are incredibly resource rich. I mean, these are not countries where they have no natural resources. They're incredibly resource rich, yet they are the poorest, most marginalized people in the world. And what I've come to realize over years and years and years is that really at the root of poverty, right, are, is, is there a material aspect of poverty? 100% certainly there is. 
But at the root, as you peel back the layers, it's really a worldview issue. It is, it is a belief of, um, so when I talk about worldview, I think about it in, three different, in terms of three questions, right? The first question is, why am I here? The second question is, what is my purpose? I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. First question is, uh, first question is, where did I come from? Second question is, why am I here? That's the purpose question. And the third one is, what happens when I die, right? <clears throat> how we answer those questions define a large part of how we see the world. And if, you're, if your answer to those questions isn't in alignment with truth, well, then you're going to behave a certain way, right? And you're going to see yourself as not having value. Where did I come from? I don't know, you know. Stars collided, there was a bang, and I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a mixture of particles and dust. Oh, great, congratulations. What's, you know, where's value in that? Well, if you believe that, then, then there's not, there's not an, a desire to go do something with your life because your life probably didn't have a lot of meaning to you. Um, or, or you believe that you're a victim. You believe that you will always be a victim. You believe that that things are stacked against you. Or from a spiritual perspective, maybe you believe that the sins of my parents, I, I see this all the time, specifically in, in countries in Africa, that the sins of my parents are why we live this way. We're being punished by God. And again, that's, that's a worldview issue, right? And so what, what I've come to realize, and, and this isn't just me, I mean, there's a lot written about this, um, is that when our worldview is broken, when we have a misaligned worldview, the consequences of that is poverty. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a, and ultimately it's broken relationships. It's broken relationships with, uh, with the creator. It's broken relationships with each other and it's broken relationships with the creation. And if you don't know how to leverage creation, it's hard for a society to thrive. If you don't know how to leverage relationships with each other, if I can't trust you, Chad, or I can't trust you, Brooke, I can't have a solid business relationship with you, right? We can't do commerce if there's no trust. And so those broken relationships, the long-term ramifications of that is poverty. And, uh, and, and, I, and I, I really believe that. I mean, I, I really believe that the, the lack of material things at the end of the day, that is the consequence of these broken relationships and this and this broken worldview. And and on the flip side, I believe we've got the same problem here. Meaning our worldview in the US, we'll just talk about the US, our worldview isn't aligned with truth. We think because we've got the money and we've got the education and that we've got the solution. We don't really need anything else. We don't really need other people. We, and again, right? So what is that? It's a broken relate they're broken relationships. I don't need you. I'll go do it myself, Chad. Well, there's no, that's a broken relationship. And that's, that's, that's still a poverty. It's just, it's a relational poverty. It's a spiritual poverty. And, um, and so I, I hope all that makes sense, but no. that is, that is, that's what I mean by that statement. No, so that makes complete sense to me. Mm -hmm. I have, you, you nailed it, man. So I have seen this in men. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Overseas, like, hundreds of men that were living in poverty and you totally nailed the root of it. I've never been able to articulate it. 
has always been something in my head along those same lines. I could see the reason that these people were living in poverty. It wasn't because the opportunity wasn't there. It wasn't yeah. because the resources weren't there. Um, it, it, all that stuff was there, but they still continuously lived in per- this state perpetual. Yeah, yeah. of poverty. And, you know, articulating it the way you did is 100% accurate, and in here's, my opinion. And here's an interesting ramification of that to think about. For and this, and this is changing. I would even say at this point it's beginning to change mainstream. But for decades, our approach to poverty... To solving poverty has been to inject resources. Yep. Somebody's poor, give them money. Well, all the money in the world will not fix a worldview problem, right? And in the same way, I mean, I think a part of the reason our worldview tends, to, as a culture, as a society, tends to be off is because of the abundance of resources that we have. So in trying to solve it with money and resources, at I mean, even if we're successful in solving the material aspect, we have perpetuated the spiritual poverty beyond what it, where it started off to begin with. And so I think that's where when we talk around, when I talk about empowerment and the importance of empowering people and people being involved in a part of the solution for themselves is so, so critical because that's where, that's where the worldview begins to change. 100%, man. And, you know, I want to go back to the comments you made about our worldview as Americans and how we are so heavily dependent on things like money and influence and, you know, all these societal uh, things. And, and it's, it is easy to think if you have enough money that you can go out and accomplish whatever you want to accomplish by yourself but that is not the way yeah. things work. And, you know, I'm a, we are a walking, living testimony of that 3 of 7 project. It, it could literally be nothing if it was just Chad. It would be, it would be nothing. It would have no reach. It would have, um, you know, just no impact. But it is something because uh, we rely on, on people like you, James, on everyone who has – has purchased a shirt from us on everyone who sent me a, a message or an email of encouragement on everyone who has heard something from this podcast or heard something that I've said or Brooke said or Blake said and went out and shared it with another person like this that's that's the most powerful thing and I've come to learn real quick you're not going to do yeah. anything by yourself mm-hmm. and it was the same in the SEAL teams man you know you know yep. it's just the way that's the way the world works, dude. So the, the questions you asked that you're kind of saying that the people that are in poverty don't have an answer to those. When you listed the three questions, I was like, Oh, I mean, what are they again? Like, what were the questions? Who am I? Where where did you come from? Okay. Why are you here? And what, where do you go when you die? What happens when you die? Yeah. So I still struggle with those questions. I mean, those are heavy questions, but if you can figure those out, you're, yeah. I mean, you're going to have a more complete life for sure. Yeah, and I, I would say it's not necessarily that they don't have answers to them. I think most people would have a answer. But if that answer doesn't align with truth, Leonard. then your compass is off, yep. right? Then you're, you're, you're going to pursue something that doesn't ultimately end in a place of, you know, 
John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come so that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the fullest, right? You're never going to get to that full life if you're, if at the foundation, you're off a click or two. You're a hundred percent, brother. I agree. Can we just say like, he's keeping his cool. Leonard, the dog was just licking his leg. (laughs) Jada's trying to climb. It, it, it didn't feel that bad, actually, after that mountain bike ride we had today. I heard that, brother, yeah. I can't believe you finished that statement without breaking anything. The dog's <laughs> Leonard. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, traveling around the world and visiting some of these places, James, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share with us a story of either an individual or a family, whatever the story is, of someone that you were able to help mm-hmm. or, or a change that you saw in someone that was that was in this place of poverty um, and, and came out the other end a more complete human being? Man, that's a great question. And we've got, I've got, I got s- several stories like that. Um, the first one that comes to mind, though, is a, um, a young man who uh, was in, in Kenya. He's still in Kenya now. When I first met him, his, his name was Fred, which doesn't sound like a real Kenyan name. No. But, but that was, uh, that's, what, that's how he was introduced to me, um, was Fred. Uh, Fred was, I think if memory serves me correctly, he was like 10 or 11 years old when we first met him. And um, Fred remembers the day that his mom took him and his little brother to the park and left him on a park bench and said, I'll be right back and never returned to pick him up. That's awful. And um, yeah, I mean, can you imagine as a child, like Fred was picked up by the local authorities uh, and in, in Kenya, this is like a thing. I mean, this happens. So here, if that happened, it would be like, you know, it'd be on the news and there'd be a whole investigator there. It's like, ah, you know, we got another one. And so, so he got put into the system, so to speak. He ended up in an orphanage where um, it was not, uh, it's a crazy story I could tell on this, but it was not a good place. I ended up, I ended up being there and seeing it. I ended up in a courtroom in Kenya <laughs> advocating on behalf of Fred almost and almost ended up in a jail in Kenya with this whole experience. But um, long story short, we got introduced to Fred through a ministry that that we had as an organization at the time, and um, and for whatever reason, I just I just connected with Fred and built a really good relationship with him. Had the opportunity to, through a variety of circumstances, had the opportunity to spend a good bit of time with Fred. And, um, and Fred was just a very hurt and wounded young man. Not only did he have the trauma of being left by his mom, he was abused by older boys at the orphanage. I mean, it was just probably by the guy that was running the orphanage. It was just, it was just a bad, bad situation. Well, we were able to help Fred. We were able to get him into a better position in a better orphanage. And, um, and over the course of several years, we were able to help get Fred a great education. He was able to get sponsored. He was able to go to um, a primary school and then advance on to a secondary school. And now, today, actually, I just saw Fred's on Facebook. Big surprise there, right? I just saw a, a post from Fred a couple days ago 
that um, in res- in response to this whole virus thing, where he um, he was he was just man, he just laid out some truth for people. He is now he's gone to culinary school. He's now a chef, and he works in Nairobi at a restaurant, and is just doing really really well, right? And again, this is a circumstance where we didn't go give Fred money, right? It wasn't about hey, let's go take care of Fred. No, it's about hey, let's give Fred every opportunity to thrive let's give fred every opportunity let's get him in let's help him get an education he's got to put in the work he's got to turn in the homework he's got to do the heavy lifting um that that would be one story not another just quick story in haiti um haiti had a horrible hurricane uh i guess it would have probably been three four years ago now hurricane matthew came through the southern part of haiti just demolished it was it was unbelievable unlike anything i'd ever i've ever seen before and um, there were families on that peninsula that were just totally, I mean, everything they owned was just totally wiped out. Livestock, um, their homes, um, loss of life. I mean, it was just, it was just bad. And, um, and we had the opportunity to go in and, and help. So we did, went in, immediately did some relief work. And then over time, we started doing different economic development programs. We did a chicken and egg initiative where we'd give people chickens and they could raise chickens and do eggs. We, um, we did some enterpri- micro-enterprise training, helped with water projects, and a number of things just to kind of stabilize and try to build, provide a foundation that then they can build on for themselves. And what's come from that is just, incredible i mean it's I'm, I'm a bit detached from it now i haven't been down there in, in probably a year and a half but but last time i was down there um some of the families that that we had helped provide chickens for like they had like this little egg empire going you know like again these were people that their situation prior to the hurricane was not good then the hurricane comes through and it gets really really bad and um and and i and i i don't want to leave this part out I, I it is what i've seen over and over again and it's this combination of the spiritual and the physical of you know them learning and understanding they went through their own furnace of adversity a different type than they'd gone through before someone there to help speak truth to them to help encourage them and to help physically give them give them an opportunity again not just a bag of rice right here's 10 chickens make a go at it and to start a business from those 10 chickens supplying eggs to neighboring hotels or restaurants or whatever and to grow that over time to a place where now they're not only living and surviving but they're contributing to the welfare of the community on others behalf and uh, and those are the types of things that that i've just had the opportunity to be a part of and see over and over and over again even at scale in some mm-hmm. places, right? It's easy to pick the one or two story of an individual here and infiltrate. But when you can see that at scale, where it's an entire community that's beginning to shift and change and they're beginning to think differently about their future and their opportunities, and ultimately for that to be rooted in faith and a spiritual strength, that's just, that's just, that doesn't, that's something to, that's a story to tell. Yeah, and I and I think that's the key ingredient, man, is you guys are not you guys aren't there with the mindset to I guess hand out material things, but you're actually giving them 
like you said, you're speaking truth into their lives. And then they have that truth to cling to. Mm-hmm. And I would bet that after they after they grasp the truth that you guys are there to give them or, or share with them, um, they would probably be way more likely to even create their own opportunities after that. I think that's yeah. the key ingredient, man, with 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 what I'm hearing. So and, and everything I've heard, it sounds like your goals and the things that you guys are doing are gonna be generational. Yeah. Like the the way that you guys change Fred's life. If if Fred has children, they're gonna grow up yep. with those fundamentals. Yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to the way Fred grew up. And and in Haiti they're creating businesses that they can hand down to their children and it's like what you guys are doing is just who knows how many generations yeah. it's going to affect you know yeah. that's really cool i want to i want to talk now about heart for lebanon um obviously we said earlier you're the executive director there you're obviously heavily involved in in the work um and Heart for Lebanon is working to transform the Middle East for Christ. That's your words. That's it. That's a bold that's statement. A, it is that's very a, that's bold. That's a big, hairy, audacious yeah. goal. That, that yeah. is a bold statement, dude, yeah. because I told you, you know, I told you earlier, you know, in North Africa, you know, any Muslim country, whether it's North Africa, the Middle East, I mean, I've been there. And I couldn't imagine trying to share the gospel with yeah. those people. Like I didn't didn't even think it was even a uh, an an option. It and of course I wasn't really rooted in a good faith in Christ at that time in my life. But even looking back now from the place that I'm in today, I could only imagine walking uh, around in a country in North Africa or the Middle East trying to to share a gospel message not only is it potentially a death sentence mm-hmm. um, but how in the world would you ever gain an audience yeah I mean these people uh, it would be such a risk for them not only to make that transition but um, it's so rooted in the fabric of their being like call for prayer man. Yeah. I can remember walking down a back alley in Tunisia and call for prayer coming on, dude. And it just, like, the sun was setting. And it's a weird thing, Eerie, dude. It? It's it like, is a weird thing. I mean, what people can can freaking say, um, you know, whatever, stupid for saying that. People have criticized me for saying that before. But I'm here to tell you, there's a, there's a spiritual aspect yeah. to that call for prayer, and it'll send chills up your back. Um, and it's just so rooted in the fabric of them for thousands of years. Dude, where do you even start? <laughs> well, I think the, I think the reality is the, the reason that I feel like I could make a statement like that and we could have that kind of vision as an organization is because God has set the stage for that. Um, it's not a, this is not a, um, something that we have manufactured or we've created this perfect scenario where we can go do this. The reality is that God has taken very, very horrible and tragic things like the war in Syria, um, 
The UN has called the war in Syria the gr the worst humanitarian disaster since World War II. Um, and they're literally, just in Lebanon alone, there are over 2 million Syrian refugees. Now, think about that for a second, right? The entire, if you take the refugees out, the population of Lebanon is about 4 million people. Hmm. And so they have, over the course of the last decade, they've had over 2 million refugees come into Lebanon. And Lebanon just happens to be, and, and if you don't know much about Syria, Syria, Syria has um, for decades been a very, very hostile place to the gospel. And so um, the fact that this tragedy, and it, and it is a horrible tragedy that's taken place in Syria, has displaced over 2 million people. I mean, it was displaced millions and millions of people. There's just 2 million. I mean, there's people in Turkey. There's people in Georgia. There's people all over the Middle East that are, and in Europe now, that are Syrian refugees. But 2 million of them are in Lebanon. Well, Lebanon happens to be the freest, most open country in the Middle East. It I is, didn't know that. Yeah, the reality is it's probably the only country in the Middle East where we could openly and boldly minister share the faith, serve people in the name of Jesus without, certainly there are risks, but nothing compared to what risks would be in other places of the Middle East. And so God in many ways, I feel like has created, has set the stage for this historic opportunity. Um, you know, our staff in Lebanon, we've got, a, we've got a full staff in Lebanon. They are amazing. Um, they are all Middle Eastern, Arabic speaking. We don't have any Americans on the ground. That's part of our philosophy, again, is we don't know how to reach their people. They know how to reach their people. Um, and so we, we've got this incredible staff. Members of our staff would tell you that they prayed for decades for the opportunity to do ministry in Syria. And what God has done is he's answered that prayer in the form of bringing a good portion of Syria into Lebanon. And so... Um, that, that is why, because these folks are coming in as refugees, they're coming in in a very desperate and vulnerable situation. And, and I can say this with, with almost, you know, almost as a, as a hundred percent fact statement, there is probably an exception out there, but I've yet to see it. Um, the only people that are there, especially today to welcome those people in and to help them uh, help provide food and necessities for these people. Again, this is a relief environment. This is different than what we talked about earlier with development. Um, the only people that are there to help them, to help educate their children, to help teach them skills, to help, um, help listen to their stories and grieve with them. I mean, the stories are heartbreaking. Are Christians, right? And so... What we hear time and time again as we interact and build relationships, the unique thing about our, our ministry model is that it's unconditional. So you don't, have to, you don't have to come to church. You don't have to come to a Bible study to receive the physical aid and the physical um, programs that we provide. You know, that's, it's unconditional. It's holistic in nature, right? So it's, it's not just physical. There is a spiritual component to it. We, we have conversations about spiritual things. We introduce Jesus into conversations so that we earn the right to have a real meaningful conversation with them. Um, and the third piece is it's highly relational. 
And so we invest a lot of time, our staff, again, they're phenomenal. They invest a lot of time in building relationships with these families and hearing their stories, crying with them, praying with them. And over time, we're, we're able to build a trust with them and to share the gospel with them. And they see it in our staff. It's, it's not as difficult as it sounds or as, um, I, I don't know, uh, at the end of the day, it's that relationship. It's that they experience Christ in our staff, and that begs a question. Totally, you're 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 leading from the front, man. Yep. Like you're walk you're walking the walk. Uh, you know the staff that's on the ground there. That's a powerful. That's another powerful statement to to and another powerful thing to think about is these refugees that are coming in in this broken state. Who is there to receive them? That's right. Um, not their not their own people. It's these these Christian people that are there to to take them in to help them to mentor them. So they are leading from the front. They're setting that example. So that's got to make a powerful impact. And I know it does, especially in that culture. Yeah. Um, you know, that's got to make a powerful impact. I got to ask you, man, for our listeners, you know, most of the majority of our listeners are living in first world countries and we are totally disconnected from what kind of people these refugees are course you know a lot of people have negative Mm -hmm. views on what a refugee is um on the reason they're there on the problems they might be causing the things that are shown on the media what are these people like man Man, chad i'm really glad you asked that question because um and again I'll, i'll just speak for me personally my first trip to lebanon knowing that i was going to meet with Syrian refugee, mostly Muslim background families. My expectation, based on what I've seen in the media, how I've been raised, is that they're not going to like me, um, they're not going to be happy to see me, and it's going to be a a certain degree of hostility towards me. And that was not my experience at all. They They are some of the most loving, welcoming, hospitable people. I have seen acts of generosity towards me personally, that I just, I, I, I certainly, I certainly would not do the same thing if I was in their shoes, where I've come into a home where they have, not even a home, a tent. These are tents that these folks are living in. Um, Some have been there in a tent for 10 years, 10 years, living in a tent, mud floor, dirt floor, no running water, no kitchen. They got a little, they're lucky. They got a little wood burning stove heater to heat their home in the winter because it's cold in Lebanon in the winter. And the Bekaa Valley, people don't realize that. They think Middle East, hot all the time. Uh-uh. It gets, they get snow. It's cold in the winter. But these, these folks are, they are, um, they're very, very welcoming. They're very hospitable. They're very kind. And they're like us. I mean, they, they want a better life. They want a future. They want to go home. They don't, they don't want to come to the U.S. I've sat at this point. I've sat in. I could. I probably wouldn't be an exaggeration to say I've sat in hundreds, certainly dozens, of refugee tents and heard their stories and talked to them. Never once have they said, "My dream is to go to America." <laughs> they, our dream is to go home, and that's what they want. 
Um, and, and I think I, I will take just a second to say, these are refugees of war. There are different types of refugees and I don't want, I don't want to get into like the whole political, you know, definition of refugee, but it's a different scenario than like what we're seeing on, on the Mexican border or places like that, because these are refugees. Like these people, their houses were bombed. Their husbands were killed. Um, the story we hear over and over again is either on the regime side or the ISIS side, because there's multiple things going on in Syria, especially five years ago, 10 years ago. Someone rolls into town and they, you're not going to fight with them. You're the enemy. And those that the lucky ones are the ones that are able to flee and get away before the shooting starts. Yeah, these, these, they're not fleeing to seek a better opportunity. Exactly. They're fleeing because their they're lives. fleeing for their lives. Yeah. For their lives. Yeah. And so, um, so it's, it's just a very different situation that they're in. And, um, and I, I just, I just got to tell you, I, I, it has, it has totally changed my view of Muslim culture. I mean, there are certainly aspects of it that, that I've learned that I don't like that are very, very, um, very, very just sad and, and oppressive. Um, but there are aspects of it as well that are very hospitable. And, and, um, and so I think the, the people are not what we think when we think of it. Um, but they are very vulnerable. And they are in a position where they are susceptible to uh, other things and other opportunities. I mean, one of the challenges that we've had over the years has been with extremist groups coming in and recruiting, trying to recruit young men out of these refugee camps. Because you got to think about it, right? If you're, a, think about being a 15 year old boy in a refugee camp. Yeah, you, you can't work because the refugees legally can't work in Lebanon because of their status. More than likely, you can't go to school. Very a small percentage of the refugees are actually able to go to school. You can't work. Can't go to school. Don't know if you're ever going to go home. You're stuck in a settlement, a tent. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And somebody comes in and they promise you, uh, they promise you a, per they give you a purpose. They promise you money, women, opportunity to <coughs> to be a man and to have a cause and a per. Like, it, I you I can see the appeal, mm -hmm. and so uh, part of what we're trying to do and working really hard to do is no no no. There is a better opportunity. We've got a couple schools that we run um, in Lebanon for uh, for refugee children specifically. Uh, we do programs in the tent settlements that are um, kind of like a almost like a VBS on wheels type thing. We call it Hope on Wheels. We run the roll the truck in and um, do all sorts of different programs, sports camps, just a variety of different things to give the students and the youth in those camps something to put themselves towards and something to be involved in that. Um, and again, through that, we're able to build relationships. We're able to talk to them about character, integrity, uh, talk to them about Jesus and the Bible. And ultimately, our hope is to see them transformed. And, uh, and that, I feel like that's, that's the tension that exists. Those are, the two, those are the two powers at play in many of these settlements. I can't, like, listening to you talk about that and thinking of... We all want to feel important. Yep. We all have this deep need to have a purpose. And to be stuck in one of those camps living in a tent for 10 years, whether you're the 15-year-old boy or you're the mom of these kids, how do you – I mean, that's – you guys are creating something for them, but that's just mind-boggling to me that you – It's 
I was in, I was there in, um, I, last time I was in Lebanon was in February. It was actually just before all the, you know, the country shut down because of the virus and all this craziness. And, uh, I was there and on the, I think it was the last day I was there. Um, me and the group I was with, we went into a, a, a tent to do a home visit and we just go in, take off your shoes, sit down and just ask them their story. And it's amazing the opportunities that just that opens up, just that someone would care enough to come into their environment and ask them questions and engage with them. Right. And, um, it was a, f a father, which is rare because a lot of over, over, I mean, I don't know the exact statistic, but certainly over 60% of the families we serve, it's just the mom and the kids because the dad either was imprisoned, killed, or fled a different way, right? And, um, and so a lot of just moms with their kids. This was a unique scenario where there was a father, a, a, a mom, a wife, husband and wife, and then they had, I believe it was four kids. And just to give you a sense of the 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 reality they've been in Syria they've been in Lebanon sorry they fled Syria um, six years ago so they've been in Lebanon for six years their youngest child is four and their oldest child is 16. 16 year old boy has one arm because when their house was bombed he took shrapnel to the arm and it couldn't be saved the next daughter is 12 she's okay the next daughter down is like nine or somewhere in that range. She's a w hoping to be able to have surgery on her foot because she's still six years later trying to recover from a shrapnel in uh, injury that, that runs from her heel all the way up almost to the top of her calf. And it's just, it's just peeled. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then they're, they're not the youngest, but the next one down was a similar similar environment similar thing he took shrapnel to the back of the neck and um and that and this is their reality i mean this is he can't work because and he again we talked about the choices earlier the choice he has to make what he asked us to pray for was that he would find a way to earn money so he doesn't have to send his daughter into the fields to work and what happens in the fields isn't just harvesting i mean there, there's for a young woman in that context and that's that's the environment that that many of these families face it's just it's it's heartbreaking and these are people they're people yeah <laughs> these are these are people just like the three of us mm -hmm. sitting here having this conversation right now on this cushy couch after yep. we finished our, our our nice dinner and all of us have a purpose as we as we see it you know and yeah I think that's the I think that's the the concept that even I have to grasp. It's easy to think about yeah. the people that you serve, James, the people that Heart for Lebanon serve. It's easy to think about them as just almost even an inanimate object mm -hmm. because we're so separated from their culture. And you know, they're in a place called Lebanon. That most Americans couldn't even point out on the map. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't. But these are people. Yeah. And I don't know why I keep saying that because maybe it just really hit me in this conversation with you, James, and has really changed 
my life, my belief, and my perspective. And maybe it hits me so hard, man, because a lot of times in the SEAL teams, in the military in general, you know, we're kind of brainwashed, dude, to, to view these people, especially like these refugees, um, not as people, but, yeah. you know, as the, as the enemy and, you know, as a kind of a lower life form. And, and maybe we're taught that they're, they're all bad and none of them are good and they're not like us. Yeah. When in reality, it sounds like that's not the case. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That just hits me hard, man. And, and it it makes me think, like, you're talking about this, and, and Heart for Lebanon is still in full effect as of right now. And it's, like, I remember the media, what, like you said, when the war was at its height four or five years ago, they they covered it. Yeah. But that's gone. Yeah. You don't like, you, you don't, I haven't heard anything. Granted, we don't watch a lot of news, but on even on Facebook articles and stuff. Yeah. I haven't seen anything about Syria. I thought that was over. Yeah, no, it's not. I had no clue that yeah. that people were still stuck in tents and suffering. And yeah, yeah, because it doesn't fit the agenda. There's an agenda. Yes. And it was there's an agenda as long as there's <laughs> drama and strife uh, based around it, and it no longer fits the agenda. But it's a thankful. It's a great reminder today that this stuff is still happening. Day in and day out, there's people on the ground that are making an impact, investing their lives and their careers mm-hmm. into helping these people. This goes, look, guys, if you're not a Christian, if you're listening to this and you think all this religious stuff is a bunch of bull crap, that's totally fine. I don't have a problem with that at all. James and, and his organization are, are helping these people far beyond just trying to convert them and turn them into a Christian. They're giving them a brotherhood, a sisterhood. They're giving them opportunity. Unconditional. Unconditionally. There's no conditions on them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if, you know, if you can't appreciate that, then I don't know. You can't appreciate anything. So (laughs) thank you so much. I know that sounded <laughs> harsh, man, but thank you so much for devoting your adult life to service of others that have been largely forgotten. Mm-hmm. How powerful is that, man? And I think I appreciate that, Chad. Thank you. It means a lot, especially coming from you, because um, you devoted so much of your life so that I can do things like this, and and I, I greatly appreciate that. Um. I've talked a lot about, we've got a saying at Heart for Lebanon, kind of our motto is we lead people from despair to hope. I've talked a lot about the despair piece, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't take the t- opportunity just to quickly just share that there is hope in the midst of this tragedy. And there we are seeing God do incredible things in the lives of these families and them finding a purpose and them finding hope and a belief and a dream for a future. And, um, and that's where, ultimately, I believe we've got the opportunity to transform the Middle East. Because the reality is, these, 
thousands of families that we're serving. And we are, we're able to serve thousands of families because of the staff team that we have and the generous um, partners and donors that we have on this side. We're able to serve thousands of family, families. And as these families grow and as they develop, we're helping develop leaders. We're helping to educate children and they're learning. They're not learning what the young girls are in school. I mean, that, that doesn't happen in middle places, many places in the Middle East. These young girls in at school, they're learning skills. They're learning character developments, character traits, um, biblically based. But to your point, some of them will never, they'll never come to Christ. My desire is that they would. But some of them never will. But they're learning what it means to be a, a leader, what it means to care for others above yourself. They're learning these principles that are Bible-based Imagine what happens in, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years, God forbid, maybe it's 20. I don't think it'll be that long. But imagine when the opportunity opens itself up to begin to mobilize these folks back in to Syria, back to Iraq, back into some of the darkest, most oppressive places in the world. They will be leaders. They will be world changers. They'll be community influencers. They'll be teachers, educators, doctors. No, right. It's a chain reaction. It's a chain reaction. And yeah. I truly believe that's how you transform the Middle East. It's not, it's not going to happen politically. We've tried that for decades. Well, people have tried that for hundreds, for hundred, right? thousands yeah. of years. I yeah. mean, yeah. it's not going to happen that way. The way it's going to happen is through developing and equipping and mobilizing leaders that have the capacity to change those around them. And over time, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's 100 years. Uh, maybe I'm pie in the sky here, but I think it's decades. Over time, that chain, re I mean, look at how fast this virus has spread, right? It, it started with a few people. Imagine leveraging that type of scale and impact for good and just the impact that could be made. And I truly believe, I, I truly believe God's up to something that could change the Middle East. It's powerful, brother. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. When you think about it that way, that's that's where the hope is, man. And um, I want to ask you a question, James. And this is, I'm going to shotgun you with this question. I'll take it. And it's, a, it's a really a, a challenge for us as Americans something that I've been thinking about. So I was at a restaurant the other day and I see this dude coming down the alley, checking dumpsters. He's living in that place of poverty, surrounded by opportunity. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like it's wrong for me to say that. I mean, we, we, li we live in America, um, but he's living in this place of poverty and it's probably because he can't answer those three questions that you said earlier. So he rides up to the restaurant, and of course, I, he, he's, we strike up a conversation. I'm like, hey, man, won't you go get you a meal? And He's like, man, I can't get a meal here. He didn't ask for anything. I was just talking to the yeah. dude. I was like, no, it's on me. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for it. And, you know, that probably had an impact on him, and it probably satisfied him for, for a few moments. But what can we do as Americans in our own communities yeah. for these people that are living in poverty? What more can we do 
other than what I did the other day and buy this dude a meal and, you know, have Give a him. quick talk with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's what's your thoughts on that, brother? And that's a great question. And I, I'm not there's I'm not sure this is the answer. Uh, but it's my answer. It's your answer. Yep. <laughs> that's what I asked for. Is um you know, again it goes to me, I kinda kinda draw the line back to my personal belief that ultimately it's a it's a worldview problem. Um money's not going to change a worldview. And again, I'm not saying that to say that doesn't mean you ever you never give somebody something. I think you absolutely do. But in the context of what ultimately changes a worldview, which is relationship. Right? I don't know, I know a little bit about your story, Chad. I don't know a lot about it, Brooke. I don't know a ton about yours, but for most of us, most of you listening, if if you were if I were to ask you a question about, "Hey, tell me about um Tell me about the the positive influences in your life. It would you could you would draw the line back to a person and a relationship, right? It's probably maybe it's a book. There's some great books out there. Maybe it was a movie that inspired you. But does it really have? Is it really transformational? And usually, at least again in my life, those transformations it's relationship, right? So if that's true, then at the end of the day. Giving him a dollar, while that's beneficial, and he could, he's gonna, he can use a dollar. That's not, that's not going to be transformational. But sitting down across the table from him and learning his story, and asking him how he got where he is, and what it would take, what he thinks it would take, for him to pull out of this, um, and begin to learn and get to know the person on the other side of that meal or the other side of that dollar. And, and it's hard. I get it. I mean, I drive, I'm, 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 I don't do it like I should because it's hard and it's messy and it takes time and energy and we want to go, go, go. And we want to just solve a problem. But at the end of the day, as simplistic as it sounds, it's really, really hard to really build a relationship with that person and learn their story. And then you get insight into what are the real factors here and how might we really be able to handle it. I've got a great friend who runs a great organization called Neighborly. And, um, and he did a crazy thing. He was, when he was like in his 20s, he had a great job at a bank. He, um, he left his job, quit his job, felt like God had told him that if he, because he had a desire to serve the poor, said James, his name is James also, said if you're going to serve the poor, you got to get to know the poor quit his job, and he went and lived homeless for like a year under bridges. And, and he came out of that with this incredible perspective on homelessness and poverty and why people are in the position they're in and what it takes to get somebody out. And like one of the things that he'll tell me all the time when I'm talking to him is he's like, hey, man, I just got done taking this guy I met on the street a couple weeks ago I got him a pair of a pair of work boots and a pair of blue jeans and a polo shirt so he could go to an interview and he got a job. It's like that's a good point. Like who's going to hire a dude that walks in that looks like he's living off the street for the last year? But get help the guy get a pair of work boots and a decent pair of jeans and a polo shirt. If the guy's got a will and a desire to get a job, he could probably find a job. If he look yeah it's things like that, right, that you wouldn't necessarily, you'd never think about when you're just driving by them on the side of the road with their sign. But 
again, it takes time and intentionality to build those relationships. Mm. That's awesome. It's oh, hard man. though, man. Yeah. It's so hard. It <laughs> is. Yeah. Cause you're not going to know what to expect if you decide to sit down with that person or invite them to eat with you. Or, I mean, that could be a really uncomfortable situation, yep. but a lot of good things could come from it for both of you. Yep. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm personally going to challenge myself and I'm going to pray for the opportunity. That's awesome. man. In the future to, to do that, to do that, you yep. know, and, you know, I feel like, you know, I had the perfect opportunity the other day when I bought the dude the meal, but obviously that was pre-conversation with James Ward. <laughs> so I would have known what to do. I'm thankful that I do know what to do now. Well, again, and, you may do it, and you may call me and say, dude, that was the worst <laughs> advice I've ever gotten. <laughs> it may not always work out like, it may not, like yeah. the sky splits and a dog like lands. I need to put a little a, disclaimer on that one. <laughs> yeah. But, but hey, man, we got, we've got to challenge ourselves. And if you do something like that 10 times and it only changes one yeah. person's life. But think about, yeah. For the rest of their life and potentially the rest of their eternity, then... What, what does it matter if you do it a thousand times and it only works for yeah. one? Mm -hmm. The value is, it can't be measured. Yeah. So, powerful man. Last thing I want to wrap up with, how can people support um, Heart for Lebanon? Where can they find it and where can they find you? Oh, thanks for asking, man. Um, Heart for Lebanon, heartforlebanon.org. Uh, that's heart, F-O-R, Lebanon. And a lot of people don't know how to spell Lebanon, but L-E-B-A-N-O-N, heartforlebanon.org. Kind of like it sounds. Kind of like it sounds, yeah. that's right. Or you can just Google Lebanon. You get it close enough, it'll it'll, it'll, it'll bring you there. Um, and there's there's opportunities to learn more about our ministry, what we do, get involved there. Um, and then personally, um, Chad and I were having a conversation earlier. I don't have much of a social media presence, but I, I am on Instagram at uh, James Ward, under, that's W-A-R-D, James Ward underscore seven nine. Um, obviously, I got to the game a little bit late because that was the best handle I could find. Uh, and then I'm on, <laughs> I'm on Facebook as well um, at James Ward. And you, I'm sure you could type in James Ward and Heart for Lebanon, and I'd come up somewhere over there as well. Or, and, and I really mean this, a lot of people say this and they don't really mean it, but if you want more information um, about what we're doing at Heart for Lebanon, how to get involved, or just about what we've talked about today, um, feel free to email me. You can email me directly at james at hflfoundation.org. Um, that's james at hflfoundation.org. And um, I'd, I'd welcome welcome any questions that you guys may have. And, uh, um, yeah, that's it. What, that's kind of my... I'm sorry, James. What's the best way to help you guys out? Is it just donations? Is that the best? Yeah, I mean, I wish... I always feel weird saying that, right? Because you want to you want to give people another option, but yeah, that really is the best way is to help us resource our staff and our team on the ground that mm -hmm. are doing that are really doing the heavy lifting every day. We do some. Um, we partner with a lot of churches, so introductions to churches is always great. Um, and then also with um, we do it. We actually do some service teams too. So like with medical professionals or um, people that have a a, a special um, 
talent or, or gift skill or skill set. set to apply to the ministry, uh, we'll, we'll try to mobilize people every once in a while to go over and get involved in that way as well. Awesome. awesome. Oh, that is. James, I can't thank you enough, brother. Oh, man. Um, not only pleasure. for this conversation, but for the fellowship that we've shared today, for the bike ride, um, for all the truth that you've spoken into my life and the encouragement that you've provided uh, you've been an amazing resource to me. You've been an amazing resource to all of our listeners. Um, you've really impacted me, and I can't thank you enough, brother. Man, I, I appreciate it, Chad. I appreciate you being a part of uh, Now is the Time. Fired April up, night, man. And uh, appreciate uh, you having me on just to be here and, and give me the platform to share a little bit. I really appreciate it. Um, and again, man, I'd love, love, love for you guys to join us on April 9th. Uh, now is the time dot live. Perfect. This is the 307 podcast. Enough said. <laughs>